What a great prayer taken straight from our text today, which is Psalm 18. Please turn with me there. As we're in this midsummer break from the Gospel of John, and instead focusing on certain passages of Scripture that we thought would be good for the life of our church in the season. And this particular one is um, maybe more for me than you. You know, when the airline pilot explains or the stewardess explains that uh, you need to put your own oxygen mask on first before helping those around you? (laughs) This is me putting on the oxygen mask. I need the book of Psalms this summer. So we pick up where we left off. This is a series that we started four years ago. And we haven't revisited it since September of 2021. So the last place we were was Psalm 17. Where do we go next? Because I'm so uncreative. Psalm 18. (laughs) So that's where we'll be today. And let your eyes scan over these verses for a second. This is one of the longest psalms in the book. 50 verses. So I will not be reading the entire text to start off with. But to orient you to the truths of the text, I'll begin with the superscript, which is actually part of the inspired text, and read down to verse 5, and then we'll study the rest of the passage together. Psalm 18. Let me read for us. To the choir master, Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. They call it a gambit. A gambit. It's a word that most of us aren't familiar with, except for those who like to play chess. I'm not much of a chess player, but I think I get the principle. A gambit is typically an opening move in which a player will try to put a piece out in a vulnerable position and actually lose that piece for a greater advantage later on in the game. It comes from an Italian word that basically means to trip up. And you understand it, and you see it in various areas of life. Even in baseball, the sacrifice fly is something of a gambit. You're you're trying to actually, like, give up something to get something greater in the end. And so, in this game of life, we often find ourselves in this position where it seems like we're losing. It seems like where something's being sacrificed a little too dear, a little too precious. And yet for those in Christ, we're still holding on to this promise that victory is ultimately assured. 
There's this dissonance between the joy and the victory and the peace that that Christ has promised, and then the losses and the pain and the frustrations that we experience in the meantime. You see it in in several areas in your own life. Uh, For some of us, at some times, it's our emotions. Here at a church like this, we talk about joy and delighting in Christ, and yet sometimes our hearts don't follow, they don't obey. And we think we're losing, but we should be winning. Or just circumstances of family and work. Very rarely do I meet people who are just saying, my life is going swimmingly. Most people can quickly point to all the things that went wrong at work or things that are going wrong in the family. Uh, Few people seem to be stumbling upon victory after victory after victory. And yet, we would expect at times that there would be just a little more winning, a little more ease, a little more excellence in life, and yet it doesn't come. Maybe it's a gambit. We see it even in our own struggles with sin. For some of us, we we feel the two steps forward, three steps back, it seems. (laughs) You get victory in one area, and then you begin to lose in another. Or you actually will have as an extended season of victory, and then it's like the bottom fell out, and you struggle again. It's like you're supposed to be winning, and yet you're losing, and we've experienced this tension. You see this echoed in our society as it seems like the gospel is going forward, and what used to be a Christian nation is now not even a post-Christian nation, but a post-post-Christian nation by some anthropologist. You see it in the political realm. The question is, are these just losses, or do they lead to a win? Is something off. Or is this part of the plan? David had right to ask that question for most of his adult life. When you look at the, uh, the superscription here, you get more detail about the background of a psalm than maybe any other in the entire book. It says specifically that this psalm was the one that was addressed to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies. This, this psalm, almost like verbatim, all 50 verses, is actually seen again in the book of 2 Samuel. And it comes after David finally eliminates the remaining sons of Saul who were giving him so much trouble. David's at the end of his life. In fact, the next passage in 2 Samuel is the final words of David. That's what it says. So David's an old man. He's had time to look back on his life. And if, and if you think about it, David had a pretty hard life. I've been reading through the Bible just for my own good, and I happen to be in 1 Kings right now. So it was only a few weeks ago I was in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel. I wasn't even thinking about Psalm 18, but let me tell you what I was thinking. It stinks to be David. I mean, you talk about a guy who like had this wonderful, peaceful existence, just watching sheep, seems like everything's going well, and then all of a sudden he gets selected, anointed to be the king when somebody else is the king, and that causes all kinds of trouble, because now that guy, for most of David's life, will try to kill him. We hear these things, by the way, 
And we think, oh, yeah, yeah, somebody's trying to kill somebody. Have you ever had anybody try to kill you? Like literally put your name like on a hit list? Have you had, ever had anybody like shoot a gun at you? Those in the military understand this. I mean, Saul would, would throw a spear at David. He would enlist 3,000 of the best soldiers in all of Israel to hunt him down. You know that feeling that you feel when you like play hide and seek with your kids and you're actually trying to win? Like imagine that your whole life. I mean, it was one thing after another. And then even after David gets into office and the army is under his control, he has these people rising up against him, like overthrowing his very rule. I mean, it's not just his one son. Then there's this other guy that shows up later. I already forgot the dude's name. Like, I'm reading through this, and I'm like, what a terrible life. And something about this last instance of all of Saul's sons who were constantly trying to undermine David, being executed, finally gave David this sense of peace where there's like, there's no human threat anymore. All my enemies are, they're they're dead. All is well. And it's at that moment that he writes this song. So here's a guy who knows loss. He knows multiple losses. He knows what it's like to have his life threatened daily, extremely. And he writes to celebrate the inevitable victory that comes to, and hear this well, that comes to God's anointed Now, you would expect me to say there the inevitable victory that comes to God's people. If we're going to be fair with the text, this is a royal psalm of thanksgiving. This is not the kind of psalm where you're like, oh yeah, that's me. I see me in this text. You don't see you in this text if you read this right. You see David in this text. You see the king in this text. You see whoever the anointed one of God will be in this text. You can't just say, oh yeah, I know what it's like to actually overcome all enemies. Like, but it's still good news for you. And let me tell you why. Because in a collectivist culture like the ancient Near East, somebody would come into a text like this and they would be happy to be under the rule of an invincible king who has overcome all his enemies. For the king to win is for the people to win. Remember even the David-Goliath incident? Goliath was the, the champion of the Philistines. If, if Goliath could be conquered, all the Philistines would be vanquished. If David would have been conquered, all of the Israelites would have been vanquished. They have representative rulers. We're so individualist, we have a hard time with this. But I want you to like, pretend you don't live in America for a moment. Pretend that your whole existence is actually embodied in an individual like a king. And then see if you find joy in the fact that God's anointed king always ultimately wins. So that's the goal. The text celebrates the victory assured to God's chosen king, and as such, this is good news for all those who are under his rule. This text is supposed to make you happy, supposed to make me happy with the victory that has already been secured in God's chosen king. Now, it's 50 verses, admittedly. 
I've already been doing this for 12 minutes, so uh, we got to get moving. Uh, let, me, let me tell you how this is going to go down. If you're looking for like um, verse-by-verse commentary or you know, explanations of every Hebrew word here, um, I'm sorry, I don't have the time. But I can give you the idea, the overflow, I mean the overview of this thing. I want you to feel the text for a few moments like the ancient Israelite reading it. I'm actually going to not try to apply it yet. So just put, put, your, put your thinking caps on, like drift back to that time and place in history where they would have entered into this poem and actually been encouraged by it. We're going to just, we're going to marinate in the poem. And then I'll try to massage out some application at the end for us today in the 21st century. Now, Hebrew poetry is interesting. They love parallels. They love big picture things that resemble one another. In fact, it's been said that the standard of beauty in many cultures is parallelism. So, like, a a beautiful face is symmetrical. If you were to take a picture of your face, you know, with the reverse camera on, (laughs) and then, like, flip it around, like, if it looks the same both ways, it's considered beautiful. If it's largely different on one side than it is the other, it's not considered as beautiful. Well, Hebrew poetry is kind of like that. They love symmetry. They love for things to, to equal out on both sides. And that's exactly what we see here. At the beginning of this poem is going to be this exclamation to God for his refuge. I'm giving you the overview if you want to take notes. <laughs> his refuge. And then there's an account of the rescue So God is the refuge, and then he gives a detailed account of the rescue. And then in the middle of the poem, there's this clarification of righteousness, like who this rescue is for. So refuge, rescue, righteousness. That's the middle, but guess what? It's got to be symmetrical. So we go to the back half of the poem, you know what we've got? Rescue, and then it ends with refuge. That's the major overview. That's the way, that's what they would have saw when they were looking at this. And you see the rescue, we just noticed it uh, in the first few verses, verses one through three. You see these amazing protections that he just comes out and says, I love you, O Yahweh, O covenant-keeping God. You're my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. As you work your way down this list, you notice that All of these are sources of protection, but what they have in common is that they're all natural. They're natural sources of protection. They're not man-made. David didn't make the rock. (laughs) David uh, didn't make the cave. Even notice this, he says, my shield, the horn of my salvation. We always wonder what that is, the horn. What is the horn of my salvation? Well, the horn is, is that thing on an ox that could cause damage. <laughs> um, when he's saying you're the horn of my salvation, you're not just my defense, you're my offense. He just, he finds his refuge, his help, his protection in God, and he says, You've delivered me from all my enemies. I didn't do this. Oh, God, you did this. You protected me. There's rescue. But he begins to, in this, um, this exclamation of refuge, starting in verse 4, he details the, the events that, that called for rescue. And what's fascinating about uh, verses 4 through 19 is it will give this, um, this 
this rescue story from a unique perspective. If you've never read these verses before, they will stun you. Like if it was a Netflix TV show, it would say, TV Y7, stunning images or graphic images. I mean, the depiction of God in this is actually rather scary. I'll try to walk you through it. Basically, you have the situation in verses 4 and 5. We read that. Notice, David felt like he was always surrounded by death and destruction. Um, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents or the floods of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol or the cords of the grave entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. So the traps, like he felt like he was going to die at any moment. That was like the way David lived, thinking he was moments away from death. It's pretty problematic. So living in that, in his distress, verse 6, he called upon the Lord to my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. So David prays for deliverance from, from physical death. We're not talking about a bad day. We're not talking about a cold. We're talking about his life being extinguished, and he prays to God. And notice the depiction of God. It's it's scary. It says this, verse 7, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Blowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. Notice what his arrows were. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. I've never seen this depiction captured in any piece of art. This isn't the kind of stuff we put up on the nursery walls. It's a rather intimidating picture. Like, what is going on here? Is he, is he actually seeing God in this way? Is this what God did? Well, of course not, friends. This is poetry. It's, it's imagery. It's giving you an idea of, of what God is like. And we've already seen God depict himself in, in valuable ways like this, like at Sinai, for example. Like, there was darkness, and there was fire, and there was rumblings. I mean, this is God showing up in full force, ready to use an American phrase, to take care of business. David saw his God as this cosmic warrior, someone who would bend the very elements of nature to his advantage. I mean, when you see this, it is indeed intimidating. 
I mean, it's actually scary. And what it reminds me of is as you just look at this graphic representation of, of God showing up with like his arsenal loaded and ready to fire, it's like one who is, is flexing their military might. A, a boxer at a weigh-in who actually like shows his muscles ahead of time. This is God flexing, friends. It's, it's us seeing Him in all of His strength and all of His terror. It's, it's us understanding like, like this is the person that we want fighting on our team. We'll talk about this later, but some of us get scared of a depiction of God like this because we wonder, could someone this strong, could someone this fierce be trusted? But David's not intimidated by this. He's encouraged by it. And notice what this cosmic warrior does. Verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Pause there for a second. Do you get what's going on? This big, strong, cosmic warrior of a God who like, can fly on the wings of the wind, who spews forth hot coals from his mouth through the clouds, firing them upon whomever would oppose him, bends down and picks up David in the most distressing of situations puts him in the safest place possible. Why? Because he delighted in him. Big, strong, scary God delights in his king. It's beautiful. That's David's poetic beautiful account of his rescue. That's what it felt like to him. That's what poetry does, friends. It conveys feeling. Some of us are like, just the facts, ma'am. You know, we, we just want it in a narrative. We want it to be precise. But the beauty of poetry, the beauty of music is, is it can capture a feeling. It can capture the emotion. David is giving you like the way that he felt and the way that, that we should feel. Like we want a big, strong God who delights to take care of his people. I mean, the rescue that is depicted here is something that is indeed unique and, and beautiful. And the question now becomes, okay, so why did God do this? It says that he delighted in David. Now, here's where things get really tough. Why did he delight in David? Why, why was David so uh, special? Why did David get this unique cosmic intervention from God? These words will make us feel uncomfortable. We move to the middle section of the poem that I've entitled Righteousness. We've seen refuge, rescue, righteousness. Notice why I call it that. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. 
For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Pause there for a moment. Anybody feeling a little uncomfortable? I mean, here we are, Protestant salvation by grace through faith alone. We can't earn God's righteousness, but man, it sure does seem like David earned it in some way. He got this rescue because he was such a great guy. This is why I refuse to try to apply this message throughout. Hear it first as they would under the context of the Old Covenant. Don't worry, we'll try to answer your theological questions. But think about it from David's perspective for a moment. There was actually a conception of right or righteousness in the Old Testament that didn't mean 100% perfect 100% of the time. Uh, One of the easiest ways to illustrate this is the book of Job. Even God himself called Job a righteous man. So did God disagree with Paul later on who would say there is none righteous, no, not one? There's different definitions of righteousness. Just like when you look in an English dictionary and it'll have those bold numbers like one, two, three, four, five, words get used in different ways according to different contexts. Especially in the book of Psalms, when you see the word righteousness being thrown around, it's not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's not talking about absolute moral perfection. It's talking about being on the right side of God. That's the best way I can explain it to you. And even back in Psalm 17, David talks about his righteousness, how he was in the right. What he meant was he was on the right side of God. He was, he was loyal to God. He was loyal to God in his ways. He didn't, like his grandchildren, forsake Yahweh and go and worship the gods of Canaan. He was loyal, generally speaking, to God. David is the same guy, by the way, who would acknowledge in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 50 that he had sinned grievously. Is he schizophrenic? No. He has a different definition of righteousness. Righteousness here just simply means that he was in the right compared to his enemies who were in the wrong. God had promised David that he would be able to hold the throne, and Saul didn't like it, and so Saul was in the wrong to be fighting against David, the Lord's anointed. Saul's children, same thing. They had no right to do that. And you know what David did, by the way? When he had the opportunity on two different occasions to kill Saul, the Lord's anointed, he didn't do it. So generally speaking, David was on the right side of the relationship with Yahweh. He was not actively rebelling or resisting against it. And so what this shows us is that the the chosen king that receives this great protection has to be one who is in a right relationship with God by the standards of the day. So David's saying, look, I'm in the right. And generally speaking, there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, God rewards the righteous and he gives retribution to the wicked. He continues this in verses 25 to 27. Here's the general principle. This makes total sense. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. 
Has anybody used the term tortuous in their life? Are you scratching your head? No, okay. That's, no one. Oh, you have. Okay, one person. I, I'm, I had to look it up. I thought it was saying, like, torturous, like he tortures. Tortuous is in the dictionary, and I found out it actually does just as good as a Greek lexicon, I mean, a Hebrew lexicon. It means uh, uh, to twist something for it not to be straight. Here, basically, the text is saying, God treats people how they treat him, generally speaking. And in this last one, to the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. Uh, if the people are going to try to be shrewd with God, he will outshrewd them. <laughs> you just think of the situations in the Old Testament, like Jacob with Laban, for example, where somebody tried to be tricky. God was a step ahead all the time. That's all the text is saying. But the point is, generally speaking, you, you want to fight against God? He's going to fight against you. you. You want to show love to God? He's going to show love to you. Like This was, this was the Old Covenant, pure and simple. This is Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. And so here's the deal, friends. Like, let's pretend, again, we're the ancient Near Eastern Israelite. Like, we want a king who obeys God. Because if he doesn't, it's going to be bad for all of us. And David's saying, generally speaking, over the course of my life, I've been on the right side of God. And that's why he rescued me in this way, which leads us to the next account of rescue. So the first account of rescue was from above. It was cosmic. This next account of rescue, David's going to look back on the same situation with all the ways that his life was threatened, but this time it's going to be from behind on the ground. So one is cosmic, the other is what I would call causative What you're going to see here is how God didn't work in imagery, but God actually worked in the life of David and helped him get real wins over real enemies. God was the one who was enabling him. He was behind him. He was causing his victories. But what you'll notice is human implementation. Whereas the first one focused on just God's divine rescue, like he's the one that gets the job done, this other one is going to show how David played a role in this, and yet it was all because God had enabled him to do it. Uh, Let's look at verses uh, 28 to 36 and see how God outfitted David for this kind of victory. He says, for it is you, or let's start in verse 27, excuse me. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great." You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. Do you see what's going on here? He's talking about how God, you, 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 he keeps saying you, you, you. God, you, 
made it possible for me to win. You gave me the strength in my ankles that I needed so that I wouldn't trip up. You gave me a firm place to stand. You gave me shield. You gave me bow. You gave me insight. He's talking about how God had outfitted him to survive, to win. And now notice how David emphasizes his part in this by talking about what he did in verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You see the interplay. I did this, I did that, but God did this, God did that. You know what it reminds me of? Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the verse before that, he tells the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you're thinking, well, that makes me tremble. I'm supposed to be working this out. And then immediately he follows it with, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In in a very physical way, David is saying, I know that I had to actually like be the one to run into the cave and I had to be the one to throw the spear or to shoot the bow, but God enabled all that. God gave me the victory. He was the one behind me. It wasn't just me. It was Him through me, behind me. And so you see the different accounts of rescue, one from above, the other from behind, which leads to his closing note, which is the last part of the poem of refuge. He mentions it one more time. Look at verse 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Just a quick pause. Rock. For the children in the room, and we're probably wondering, who cares if God's a rock? You know, I stick rocks in my pocket. We're not talking about that, dear ones. We're talking about massive rocks that can provide shade from the sun in the middle of a hot desert. We're talking about rocks that provide a place to hide when somebody's shooting bow and arrow at you. It's, a, it's like a castle. When he says he's my rock, he's saying he's my, my castle. Blessed be my rock, my castle. Exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. Likely here, Saul. For this... For this victory, for this, for this win, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. Not just in the assembly, but among the nations. And sing to your name. And this is what he sings. Great salvation he brings to his king. And shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. 
when he's giving this closing note of refuge, he ties it specifically to his office as the chosen king. That is what God had promised. And yet, as the poem comes to an end, you can only imagine how the, uh, the ancient Israelite, first reading this account from David, would have rejoiced while David was on the throne. You know, you, we... Um, like some songs, they're like really popular for a couple weeks, and, um, and then you never hear from them again. You know, we call them one-hit wonders. It kind of makes you wonder if this was a one-hit wonder. Like, it couldn't have gotten that much longevity because, I mean, David writes the song, he gets it published, maybe people start hearing about it, and they're like, oh, this is great, yes, David's defeated all his enemies. And, and what'd they get? Maybe like three months of use out of this song before he disqualifies himself for doing the census, and God ultimately uh, says that, hey, you're going to die, and I'm going to give your kingdom to your son. So maybe they're thinking, all right, this is going to apply to Solomon. And again, as somebody who's reading through First Kings right now, it starts off really strong. You're thinking, yes, this song applies to Solomon. We could keep singing about our victorious king. Oh, man, he blows it up royally, pun intended. I mean, like, bringing in, like, all kinds of foreign gods, like, building altars for them. Like, you're like, well, it's not him. And then, I mean, this, yeah, it just gets worse and worse and worse. I'm actually, frankly, I'm tired of reading 1 Kings, but I'm just, I'm determined to push through because it just gets worse and worse and worse. And this is what I'm wondering as I'm reading, because I've been thinking about Psalm 18. Did they just put this one on the shelf and like, well, that was a good song for a few years ago, but we can't sing it now. Because they are losing, and guess what? They don't have a righteous king. But you want to know what's interesting about the Jewish people? They kept singing this song. They would sing it every Feast of Tabernacles. And you're thinking, they're insane. There's this wishful thinking. They saw the promise given to David that his throne would actually reign forever and ever. They saw that as a promise, and they knew that God wouldn't give up on it. And they were just waiting for the right descendant of David to come. And to truly live righteously and secure victory fully, finally, forevermore. This isn't my Gentile attempt, by the way, to try to make this thing make sense. I'm telling you, Jewish people for hundreds of years were singing Psalm 18 in expectation that one greater king would come and finally fulfill the ultimate victory that they were all longing for. They knew it to be a gambit. They knew that they would lose in the short term to gain ultimately in the long term because of this ultimately righteous king who would come. And so Paul himself in Romans chapter 15 appeals to this very text when he talks about the salvation of the Gentiles. Friends, now let's, let's take off our ancient Near Eastern hat and let's put on our modern-day Christian hat and let us celebrate that even though these promises aren't directed toward us, like we're the ones that has the cosmic warrior God at our direct uh, disposal every time somebody cuts us off in traffic. Our chosen king 
does have the cosmic warrior God at his disposal, and it was seen in the way that he lived those 33 years here on his, this earth, totally mastering nature for the good and well-being of individuals. And here's the craziest thing, not only inflicting his will over the created order, but absorbing the worst of the wrath of the warrior God upon himself so that his people could truly be called righteous. This isn't just a king who comes, kicks butt, takes names. But this king who came took upon himself the vengeance due his enemies so that others could be graciously included in God's good rule. That's encouraging. That's your king. And and victory is assured to all those who are subjected to his lordship. It is a good thing, friends, to be under the rule of the fearsome living God. And so by means of application, I'll give you just this line that I think that you should meditate on that would serve you well this week. Fierce God for us in Christ. There's your meditation points. In a set of three. Fierce God for us in Christ. This psalm helpfully depicts God in a way that most modern philosophical conceptions of God cannot capture. This is what one theologian called uh, the mysterium tremendum. There's this sense of, of real fear and dread in light of God's high and holy power. When the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it is not just saying, respect God, say yes sir and no sir. It's actually saying, realize, He is God. He can do whatever He wants, and He can rightfully destroy all those who rebel against Him. He is majestic, a consuming fire, whose splendor causes dread in sinners and delight in saints. I know that could seem like an oxymoron to you. Jonathan Edwards acknowledged that. He would actually say, "'Tis possible that those who are holy without grace, for them to have a clear sight and a very great and affecting sense of God's greatness, His mighty power and awful majesty." It's possible to understand for God to be high and holy and terrible. But those who are in Christ actually know more than that. He illustrates this um, with a thunderstorm, I think, which is perfect for us this time of year. You're hearing them every day. 
and you're standing outside and you see the dark clouds forming and you start like hearing that shaking in the air and you start seeing those sharp bolts of lightning. And for many people, such a display of power is actually an intimidating thing, causing them to want to get indoors. And Edward said, before he truly understood who God was, like he would feel this way at an approaching storm. I'm just reading from his personal narrative here. He says, "Um, unable to rest on God, I found the knowledge of a creator to be terrible. I used to be a person uncommonly terrified with thunder. And it used to strike me with terror when I saw thunderstorms rising. But something changed in Edwards. This is what he said. Through reading Scripture... I began to sense the excellency of God, feeling, quote, how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up with Him in heaven. He all of a sudden thought, this God with all His ominous dread, like, it's possible that God could be for me, not against me. I mean, he knew God to be fierce. He says, these, these happy thoughts of God, the fact that this God could be for him and not against him, it changed how he saw him, and it changed how he experienced his creations. And, and it says, where once nothing had been so terrible to him as a thunderstorm, now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself, to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder which oftentimes was exceeding entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. What was the difference between Edwards being scared to death of God's displays of might and majesty and delighting in them? It was understanding through reading of the Word of Christ that God could be and would be for him. That's the difference. Edward's experience of the creation was different because his knowledge of the Creator had been infused with the knowledge that the High and Holy One is the most gracious Redeemer. Friends, indeed, our God is fierce. This text proves it. But that is only bad news for those who are opposed to Him. This fierce God is for those who are in Christ, which brings us to that second phrase, fierce God for us. For us. He's not just a creator, uh, but He is a Father. Like, He has brought us into His fellowship. All the wrath, all the wrath has been satisfied. Like, remember what happened to Jesus on the cross? Remember when it turned dark? Remember when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the full front of God's cosmic justice that day. And so Paul would be able to gratefully exclaim in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is not against you. He is for you. And all of that majestic might will be leveraged for your benefit. It is for those who are in Christ. One author put it this way, without Christ, we see nothing in God but an angry and terrible judge. Friends, some of you are here visiting today and you've 
been questioning God and His existence, and you're wondering what it would be like to follow Him, and there's this secret dread that keeps you from entering in to His high and holy presence, I want you to know that you will never be able to escape that dread unless you find yourself on the right side of God, which only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus. So, this fierce God is for us. Martin Luther foresaw this when he wrote, We were totally unable to come to a recognition of the Father's favor and grace except through the Lord Christ, who is the mirroring image of the Father's heart. Without Christ, we see nothing in God but an angry and terrible judge. Friends, he's no longer an angry and terrible judge for those in Christ. He delights in his chosen one. And he delights in all those who are under the chosen one's rule. So fierce God for us. But let me be clear, it is all in Christ. It is in Christ. Just as the ancient Near Eastern Israelite couldn't take this psalm and apply it to themselves, but they only could enjoy it by virtue of their connection to the anointed king, so also these promises of certain victory, let me just be crystal clear, they're not for you. You you can't go out and say this week that the cosmic warrior God is going to come and intervene in all your situations. Here's what you can know, that he has already intervened in your chosen head who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who belong to him are safe under his rule. You're under the jurisdiction. Let me put it this way. You're under the jurisdiction of the Lord Jesus. And you have access to this king, God's son, who has access to the powers of heaven and hell at your disposal on behalf. And I don't know about you, but I just I wouldn't want to be responsible for using that kind of power. I'd rather have someone smarter, wiser, better exercising it on my behalf for me. And that's what the Lord Jesus has done. He exercises that authority with God the Father on our behalf for our good. And so we celebrate. We celebrate the win that we will inevitably enjoy because our greatest problem has already been solved by Him and the extant problems that we still see around us, He'll fix upon His return. Let's thank Him for that now and then sing a song of praise in light of it. Father, you're the fierce, holy, awesome God. You're righteous and holy. And indeed, we deserved your wrath on account of our rebellion. And yet your son, the perfect chosen ruler, came and intervened. Absorbing that wrath on our behalf, including us into his righteous rule. And now we know nothing but your favor and your grace. And even the temporary setbacks and frustrations we experience now all work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There are no ultimate losses for those in Christ. It is a win. Or give us the eyes to see that we are under the protective rule, the salvation, the victory already provided in Christ. And for those who are trying to win their own battles, for those who are trying to somehow earn favor with you on their own, convict them. 
Lord, draw them even today to a saving knowledge of this, their only King who can bring salvation. Lord, help us now as we express our gratitude in a song of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.